Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 3, Episode 9, Protected by Destruction, Part 1. The archers run, and they grab their long bows of bamboo or steel. You hear the creak of leather, the occasional chink of metal armour, as they hurriedly put their armour on. The horsemen run to their mounts and climb them, and the army assembles and heads off through the fruit orchards, towards the mountains, towards the Khyber Pass. A new enemy is coming. For some years now they've been lurking the other side of those mountains. But now they're rushing through the pass towards you, pale-skinned horsemen, in their hands lances ten feet long with tipped metal points, by their side lassoes. These horsemen, they ride with little armour, helps them go all the faster. And alongside them trot footmen, also lightly armoured, also moving quickly, but armed to the teeth. They have clubs, shields and long swords, and most importantly they have recurved bows. These are archers so deadly that they're feared as far away as China. The Huns are coming to India. The first battle between the Huns and the Indian forces was probably over pretty quickly. We don't actually have any details about it, and the little bit bit of fiction we've just heard was drawn from a variety of different sources. To be honest, a lot of what we know is just an educated guess. We don't even know for sure that they came through the Khyber Pass. Although they probably did, because we do know for sure that they invaded Gandhara, which was uh, in northwest India, the most important province in that area, and that they built the rulers of Peshawar, the city that stands at the gates of the Khyber Pass. And this wasn't just a raid either. This was an invasion, and the Huns were here to stay. Pretty soon, you would have seen Huns moving their families and belongings in, and starting to bury their dead. The richer families building up stone on stone, constructing a stone house for their dead loved one. And the poorer families digging down into the ground and lowering a wooden coffin into it. At the funeral, you might see the dead man's wife, alongside her other husbands, because the Huns practiced polyandry, many husbands for one wife. And the other husbands would have been brothers of the dead man. And that's just one of the strange customs that you're going to have to get used to. Because a new governor is appointed, Peshawar has fallen, and for better or worse, Ganhara is now another province in the Hunnic Empire. Over the next two episodes, we're going to tell the story of the Huns' invasion further into India. In this episode, we'll be taking a close look at the Huns as they invade northwest India. And in the next episode, we'll see the Gupta Emperor raise his armies and march out to face them. Even before the Huns came thundering into India, most ancient Indians would have called the people who were already in charge of northwest India Huns. We would call those people the Kidarites, or sometimes the Kidrite Huns. But the Kidrites themselves would probably have called themselves the Kushans. As we'll see, there's a lot going on behind each of those three identifications the Huns, the Kidarites, the Kushans. The story starts. Back around the time when the Gupta Empire started out. 
Back then, you wouldn't have found any Kinnerites in India at all, because they were a nomadic people up on the steppe. They were cattle herders. And they became friends with the mighty Persian Empire, which at that time was increasingly dominating Central Asia. The Kidrite soldiers actually fought in Persian wars, and that won the Kidrites an awful lot of goodwill. The Kidrite leadership started to take advantage of this goodwill, and they wanted to carve out a permanent place for themselves in the world. They wanted to settle down. And the permanent place they decided to settle down into was the Kushan Empire. The Kidrites saw themselves as Kushans. Kushans, after all, had also been nomadic people roaming around the steppe once upon a time. And the Kushans had then settled in Bactria. And after that, they'd invaded India. And then finally, they'd been defeated by the rise of the Persians. Well, the Kidrites decided that they wanted to recreate the Kushan Empire. They were going to be the new Kushans. And that wasn't a crazy idea at all. The Kushan Empire had lasted an awful long time. And the culture of Kushan leadership was still ingrained in the institutions and some of the ideology around. And in any case, reforming long-lost empires was kind of in vogue. The current Persians, they had done pretty much exactly that with an old group of Persians. So why couldn't it be done again? Why couldn't you resurrect the Kushan Empire? So the Kidarites settled down just beyond the Persian borders. And if you want to recreate the Kushan Empire, where better to settle down than in the old Kushan heartlands, in Bactria and some of the territory around it into the north. That's modern day northern Afghanistan, Tajikistan and southern Uzbekistan. So the Kidarites settled down and they were safe and secure in their heartlands. They decided then to follow the Kushan and invade India. By this time, the Gupta Empire had been nearly fully formed. Right? Chandragupta II was just starting out the Golden Age. But he had left northwest India outside of Gupta lands. Probably back then, northwest India was just a patchwork of small kingdoms, including some kingdoms that were still clinging to the remnants of Kushan traditions. Well, a Kidrite king took his army and crossed the mountains and he took control of Gandhara, the major province in northwest India. The Kidrite king, by the way, his name was Kidara which means something like valiant. Uh, the group is supposed to be named after the king rather than vice versa. I'm not entirely clear. And King Kidra put his son in charge as the governor of Peshwa. This was just another step in the footprints of the Kushans. Peshwa had been around for a millennia or more, but it was a city that had really started to prosper under the Kushans. When the Kushans had first come to India, they'd come through the Khyber Pass and they'd conquered Peshwa and had made it their regional capital, their capital for that part of India. Kidra was following the Kushan playbook to the last X and O. Then Kidra took his army north and he conquered a large tract of land in the northern part of northwest India. And there he stopped for a bit. He didn't take it any further. And once again, this is following exactly on the Kushan playbook. The Kushans, after conquering Ganhara, had taken a break and waited for the next generation, the next king, to move further into India. Well, perhaps Kidra was simply doing the same, leaving the rest of India as a job for his son. In any case, Kidra settled down to administering his new province. He issued gold coins, 
modelled, of course, on cushion coins. And just in case you think I'm overblowing this whole wannabe cushion thing, on those coins he announced himself the king of the cushions. If you were an ancient Indian living in Peshawar, rule under the Kidrites was probably nothing new. You'd been ruled, or your people had been ruled by cushion kings before. And more recently than that, they'd been ruled by these small kingdoms claiming to be successors of the cushion kings. Now sure, these Kidrites might be Huns of a sort, you might call them Hunas, which is the Sanskrit for Huns. Both people inside India and outside India called them that. But that term sometimes meant nothing more than that these people were once nomads from the steppe. The same might have been said of the cushions had the cushions appeared a few generations later. This whole spiel was really nothing new to anyone who'd been living in northwest India for any length of time. The Kidrites seem to have kept themselves apart a little bit from local culture, both in their lifestyle and in their religion. Just like the Kushans, the Kidrites brought into India Iranian religion. Actually, the Iranian religion they brought in was a bit different than what the Kushans had brought in. The Kushans had brought in a range of different radiant of different gods, most of them Iranian, some of them actually borrowed from even earlier before they'd come to the Iranian sphere. But the Kidarites, they brought in the new biggest Iranian religion, Zoroastrianism. At this time, Zoroastrianism was being pushed very hard indeed by the kings of Persia. The current king of Persia, he was almost fanatical. He was quite willing to kill the leaders of other religions to make sure that Zoroastrianism was number one in his territory. And the Kidarites, they clearly bought into it. They clearly supported Zoroastrianism and took it with them into India. So the fire altar, which is very closely associated with Zoroastrianism, that appeared on the Kidarite coins. And Zoroastrian imagery started to appear in the sculptures, flames licking up from the bottom. But this new Zoroastrianism that the Kidarites imported into northwest India, it didn't seem to affect your life, affect the life of an everyday person in northwest India very much. I mean, presumably the Kidarites just weren't as fanatical, weren't as zealous in pushing their religion onto their subjects as the Persian king was. They seemed to be much more content to live and let live. And Buddhism seems to have remained the most prominent religion for the everyday people at least. Even by the end of Kidarite rule, there were around 500 monasteries scattered around Gandhara. Uh, and I'm sure there was plenty of Brahminical orthodoxy and a bit of Jainism around too. And just as the Kidarite religion didn't affect everyday folk much, neither did their culture. The people of northwest India continued to speak Indian languages, continued to eat and drink North Indian food, and wear the same clothes as pretty much everyone else in North India. Their rulers might have marked them apart from all others on the subcontinent, but at least according to visitors at the time, little else distinguished the people of northwest India. So the Kidarites had come an awful long way towards recreating the Kushan Empire of old. They had conquered its heartland, they'd moved into its backyard in northwest India, and they were ruling it all under the Kushan name. And then, at this point, the Kidarites were in danger of becoming a little bit too much like the Kushans. Remember the Persians. They had destroyed 
the Kushan homeland, and that had made the Kushan Empire crumble. Well, the Kidites had been friends with the Persians, but now the Persians decided that they just didn't want to be friends anymore. Presumably, the Persians were thinking, we don't want a new Kushan Empire right on our doorstep, someone to rival us, we want to stop that before it really gets going. The story of this war between the Kidites and the Persians is a curious one. It's worth a little bit of a diversion. So the Kidites had started to refuse to pay tribute to the Persian king. They were thinking, we're an empire of our own now. We're the Kushan Empire. Why should we bow down to the people who destroyed the old Kushans? Well, the Persians thought that they really still should bow down to the people who destroyed the Kushans. And the disagreement didn't get resolved, so the Persian king invaded Bactria. The aim of the Persians was to destroy the Kidrite homeland and add it back into Persian territory. And the Persian king almost succeeded too. Only he died. We, we don't really know why, but there was a war of succession. His sons fought one another, a pretty brutal civil war. One of uh, the groups of Huns were very much involved, but more on that later. After a few years a new king of Persia finally emerged. And he set about finishing the job his father had started, finishing the job of retaking Bactria, knocking out this new Kushan empire before it got any bigger. And the new king of Persia almost succeeded in doing that too. Only, well, he didn't die. He'd just run out of money. He just couldn't pay his soldiers anymore. He asked his friends, the Byzantines, to help him out. But Bactria was too far away from them. And the war just petered out. The king of Persia was caught short without money, so he offered the Kidarites a peace deal. And the deal was, no one's going to fight, and I'm going to send my daughter, the Persian princess, to marry you, the king of the Kidarites. Everything was agreed and it was signed off. And then it came to the moment when the Persian king had to send off his daughter to the king of the Kidarites. And he bottled it. He refused to send his daughter away to hostile lands. Uh, no worries, he thought. They've never seen my daughter. What I'm going to do is going to find some poor girl streaming out the street somewhere. I'm going to dress her up finely and I'll send her off instead. They'll never know. And that's exactly what the Persian king did. And, remarkably, it seemed to go well. No complaints came from the Kidarites. A little while later, the Kidarite king asked for some Persian officers to head the new Kushan army. That was a brilliant idea, thought the Persian king. That was an offer the Persian king just couldn't refuse. Putting my own Persian men in front of my old enemy's army as leading them. Definitely. So the Persian king promptly sent 300 of his top officers along to the Kidrite lands to take charge of their army. It was all looking so good. It was looking like it was going back to the good old days when the Persians and the Kidrites were friends and the Kidrite men served under Persian officers in the Persian army. It was looking good, but it really wasn't. The Kidrite king had discovered that his new wife wasn't really a Persian princess. I mean, of course he had. The request for the 300 officers, that was just a ruse, most of them were murdered when they arrived, and the rest were sent back to Persian lands, horribly mutilated. They were a message to Persia. A gruesome message. Inevitably, war broke out again. But this time, the Persian king had some new friends. Another people, also once nomads up on the steppe. The king of Persia had allied himself with the Huns. 
and together, the Huns and the Persians easily thrashed the Kidarites. The king of Persia would probably have come to regret involving the Huns. He might have counted it the worst mistake a king of Persia had ever made. Anyway, the upshot for people who are living in northwest India was that by the time the Huns came thundering through the mountains to India, the Kidarites had lost most of their homeland. They had nowhere to go. This new Kushan empire was broken up before it really got started. And the people of northwest India would be once again ruled by a different set of foreigners, the Huns. Though this time, it was going to be a little different. ancient Indian at the time of the Huns. You'd want to know a little bit about them. You'd want to know what to expect. Who are they? Where did they come from? What customs did they have? What do they do to people they beat in battle? Well, let's go about the ancient world for a bit, gathering some intel. If we could, we might have talked to the Romans. After all, the Romans had been fighting these Huns for 60 years. And we still have some early reports of the Huns from the Romans. There was a a Roman poet called Claudian. And he tells us that uh, these Huns, they live to the east of Scythia, above India. Uh, He tells us that they're hideous, they're loathsome, but that they're infatigable. They stop at nothing. He says they never eat bread, they only eat meat, and they are incredible horsemen. The poet says they are like centaurs, because the horses are so much a part of them, they seem like one beast. Well, that was a poet waxing lyrical. Can we get a more reliable source? What about that chap, Jordanes? Jordanes is a Roman writer. He was once a nomad on the steppes himself. He wasn't a Hun. He was from one of the peoples that were beaten by the Huns. And since then, he'd gone all Roman. And he'd written a book about his experience. And about a decade before they, uh, the Huns came rolling into India, this book was around. The book isn't exactly nice to the Huns, as you'd imagine for someone whose people had been destroyed by the Huns. I'm going to quote it exactly so that Jordanus has to say the nasty stuff and I can avoid it. They made their foes flee in horror because of their swarthy aspect, which was fearful. And they had, if I may so call it, a sort of shapeless lump, not a head, with pinholes rather than eyes. Their hardihood is evident in their wild appearance, And they are beings who are cruel to their children on the very day they are born. For they cut the cheeks of their males with a sword, so that before they receive the nourishment of milk, they must learn to endure wounds. Hence they grow old beardless, and their young men are without comeliness, because a face furrowed by the sword spoils its scars, spoils by its scars the natural beauty of a beard. These Huns are short in stature, quick in bodily movement, They're alert horsemen. 
their broad-shouldered, ready in use of bow and arrow, and have firm-set necks which are ever erect in pride. Though they live in the form of men, they have the cruelty of wild beasts. Pretty scathing stuff, although you might suspect it's not exactly reliable. I mean, after all, this chap Jornades, he's clearly got an axe to grind. Can we get any more reliable information from the Romans? Well, yes. There's a Roman soldier who wrote about his experiences, and he said this. The people of the Huns exceed every degree of savagery. Since the cheeks of the children are deeply furrowed with steel from their very birth, in order that the growth of hair, when it appears at the proper time, may be checked by the wrinkled scars, they grow old without beards and without any beauty, like eunuchs. They all have compact, strong limbs and thick necks, and are so monstrously ugly and misshapen that one might take them for two-legged beasts, or for the stumps rough-hewn into images that are used in putting sides to bridges. They have no need of fire, nor of savoury food, but they eat the roots of wild plants and the half-raw flesh of any kind of animal whatsoever, which they put between their thighs and the back of their horses, and thus warm it a little. That myth of putting the meat between the saddle and the horse, or between your thighs, to kind of grind it down so you can eat it raw, that myth reoccurs over and over. I heard that myth once about South Africans and Biltong. Entirely false. Anyway, where were we? They are never protected by buildings. They avoid those like they were tombs, which are set apart for everyday use. They dress in linen cloth or in the skins of field mice sewn together, which must have taken quite a lot of sewing. And they wear the same clothing indoors and out. Preposterous. But when they once put their necks into a faded tunic, it isn't taken off or changed until by long wear and tear it has been reduced to rags and fallen from them bit by bit. They never change their clothes, every teenager's dream. They are almost glued to their horses, he says. From their horses, by night or day, every one of that nation eats and drinks, and bowed over the narrow neck of the animal relaxes into sleep so deep as to be accompanied by many dreams. So, according to the Romans, those are the Huns. They have scars on their cheeks, since birth, which seems pretty cruel, uh, they're short, they're definitely ugly, and they're definitely almost one with their horse. All of that is terribly colourful, and all of that is entirely useless to an ancient Indian. That's partly because ancient Indians probably didn't have access to these Roman books. These Roman books were written before the Huns invaded India, but probably weren't around in India. But it was mostly useless because the Huns the Romans are talking about are completely different from the Huns that we're talking about. It's useful to understand where our image of Huns comes from. It comes from those Roman quotes, essentially. Just so that we can get over that image of the Huns and start reforming it. The Romans were talking about Attila the Hun and his crew. The Huns bothering India, they're from a different group. Both Romans and the Indians called them the White Huns. They're also called the Heptathelites, which means the Valiant. It's also what the Kidrites means, so... Um, it's a pretty generic term. We're going to stick to the White Huns. About the White Huns, the Romans didn't have that much to say. After all, they didn't fight them. The Romans only said that the White Huns were a bit less ugly, which is nothing more than a sort of ancient racism. 
If we want our intel about the right people, the White Huns, we're going to have to look elsewhere. One place to look is the ancient Chinese. The ancient Chinese had a series of embassies and a series of investigators who sent dispatches back to China about the White Huns. In fact, the White Huns themselves even sent an embassy to China. So the ancient Chinese scholars could have told us at least some reliable things about the White Huns. They would have told us that they're not nomadic like the other Huns. They'd long since settled down to a city life. The Chinese scholars would have told us that these White Huns had a proper state. They had the normal institutions of law and order. They could make treaties with other states. They could keep state records in their archives. They had all of those features of a stable nation-state. They still kept on with some of the nomadic traditions. They patrolled the country on horseback, and they didn't always settle in the towns. But that's roughly the picture. They've become a normal nation. It's a bit unclear, actually, whether the king had a fixed capital. Some of the Chinese scholars would have told us that he did. He lived in a glorious house and he sat on a great big glorious golden throne. That presumably means that he couldn't move around. A great big golden throne is too heavy to be quickly lumped on the back of a horse. Other Chinese scholars say, no, no, they kept more traditions than that from the nomadic era. The king was just wandering around. So we've got some quite good intel from these Chinese scholars. But even with all of that intel, we've still got some major questions left completely unanswered. What made these Huns such fierce warriors? What were the connections to the other Huns, the Huns attacking Rome? And most of all, where on earth did these Huns come from? I mean, they seem to have just appeared out of nowhere. Well... Suppose you were an ancient Indian gathering your intel, and you were somehow able to talk to a modern historian. The modern historian wouldn't be able to offer much help at all. Nowadays, there's a whole herd of ideas about where the Huns came from. Some modern historians agree with the ancient Chinese sources that the, uh, the, the, the white Huns at least came from Central Asia, from southern Kazakhstan to be more precise. Other modern historians think that the White Huns were from the Yu Chi. In other words, they were just the same as the Kushans. The two most popular ideas about the origin of the Huns seems to be that they were Mongolians, that this was a sort of early movement like Genghis Khan's movement would be later, or that they were a sort of Turkic people. Now, none of the ideas are obviously better than all the others, and the debate rumbles on without any sign of resolution. I've often wondered whether... Our ignorance about Huns is just because there hasn't been any money invested in finding it out. Maybe the answer is out there to be found, given sufficient time and money and effort. Actually, the ancient sources say that the White Huns were pretty good record keepers. It wasn't that they didn't write things down. In fact, they had a much bigger literature than many of the people around them, or so our sources say. Nevertheless, very little of that White Hun literature has been found. Maybe it's still out there. Maybe we just haven't looked for it like we've looked for Roman and Egyptian and British records because no modern state traces itself back to the Huns. So no one has their national identity so invested in working out who the Huns were. I mean, there's Hungary, of course, which is partly named after the Huns, but it isn't called Hungary in Hungarian. 
It's named after a completely different group of people called the Magyars, so presumably Hungarians don't often think of themselves as descended from the Huns. I mean, many people on the earth must be descended from Huns, but so few of us think of ourselves in that way that there isn't that all that much interest or money in identifying where the Huns came from. And maybe that's why it remains one of history's great mysteries. I suppose if you were an ancient Indian and you wanted to know where the Huns came from, the best thing to do would be to go and ask the Huns themselves. Actually, though, that wouldn't have helped. Because the Huns themselves didn't seem to know where they came from. At the very least, a Chinese historian who had met with the Huns themselves couldn't work it out. We don't know what is certain, he said, in a foreshadow of Donald Rumsfeld. It is impossible to decide. Quite. And everything I've said just amounts to a great big admission of our tremendous ignorance about the Huns. But if we want to find out about the White Huns, and in particular, if we want to find out what it's like to be an enemy of the White Huns, or to be ruled by them, then we should go and talk to their enemies. We should go and ask the Persians. The Persians had been fighting the White Huns for a couple of decades already before they came into India. And the tale of those wars between the Persians and the White Huns is helpful for understanding the Huns. It's helpful for understanding how our modern picture of them is right and how it's wrong. The story of the Huns and the Persians really starts with the civil war in Persia. The civil war which saved the Kidarites, the one where the king of the Persia died and his sons fought for the crown. One of the sons was a man called Peroz. Peroz had been a governor in the territory near Bactria, near the Kidarites, and also near the White Huns, who were somewhere around that area at that time. And the White Huns decided to intervene in the civil war and give their backing to Peroz. And that was how Peroz came to win the civil war and become king of Persia. Peroz rewarded the White Huns with a decent chunk of territory, and then he settled down to rule the Persian Empire. Pretty soon, though, Peroz changed his mind and decided to attack the White Huns. I'm not really sure why. Perhaps it was the same reason that he attacked the Kidarites. There's a growing power on your doorstep. It seems wisest to preempt the threat. Well, it might have seemed wisest, but it definitely wasn't wise at all. Peroz took the Persian army into battle against the White Huns, and the White Huns crushed his army, seized him, and then demanded a ransom. And the Persians had to go cap in hand to their friends, the Byzantines, to get the cash to pay to get their king out. They had no choice. The ransom was paid, and Peroz headed home. But he wasn't done yet. A few years later, he gathered the Persian army again and he attacked the White Huns again. And the White Huns promptly crushed his army, seized him, and demanded a ransom. This time, though, the Persian treasury was empty from the last ransom. And the Byzantines, they were understandably reluctant to pay for any more of Peroz's weird expeditions. So Peroz managed to persuade the White Huns to take his son hostage instead of him. And they swapped places. Peroz headed home, leaving his son in the hands of the White Huns. But before he left, the White Huns made Peroz make a solemn promise. To never invade the White Hun territory again. 
to never go past that tower that marked the border between the Hunnic lands and Persia. Perez agreed, and he went back, tail between his legs, to the Persian throne. But Peroz was nothing if not persistent. They say madness is trying the same thing over and over when it doesn't work. Well, Peroz was definitely mad by that definition. Try, try and try again. And he tried again. He gathered his army and he headed to the border. When the White Huns heard that the Persian army was gathered and heading towards them, they were understandably a little bit ticked off. They sent a message to him, and the message basically said, Hey, what the heck, man? I thought we had a deal. Stay on your side of the border. According to the stories, Peroz had a plan for keeping his promise. That tower that marked the border between the Hunnic lands and the Persian lands, he got 50 elephants and he tied them to the tower. And then he got 300 men and he tied them to the tower too. And then he made them move forward and they dragged the tower behind them. That tower must have had some really solid mortar. In any case, the White Huns saw the Persian army coming. After all, they were dragging a big tower behind them, and the White Huns retreated. Before they did so, though, they dug huge pits. They covered them with thin sticks, and they'd scattered earth on top of that. The Persian army didn't see the pits. They walked over. They walked over them. The sticks snapped and the Persian army fell in. The Persian army was literally in the pits. Some of them were out of the pits, but scrambling around. Just then, the White Huns rushed in from over the horizon, and before the Persians could get their army back in formation, the White Huns were amongst them. It was a slaughter. King Peroz was killed. A Persian commander managed to save some of the royal family and some of the treasure. All of those three wars had probably happened in the years immediately preceding the Huns crashing into India. And there's a nice epilogue to the story too. In the chaos that followed King Peroz's death, one of Peroz's sons fled to the White Huns. His brothers were trying to kill him, presumably. And surprisingly, the White Huns received him with grace, the son of their enemy, even with honour. And he lived with them for four years, and he even married the White Hun princess. And then after four years of getting to know them, and then getting to know him, four years of building up trust, Peroz's son was given command of some White Hun troops, and he set off to seize the throne of Persia. And his fate? That will have to wait for a different episode. So what do these Persian wars against the White Huns teach us? Well, first, that the White Huns aren't these ruthlessly aggressive raiders like Attila the Hun seems to have been. The Persians had been the one being the ruthlessly aggressive ones. They had been the one attacking the White Huns, not vice versa. Though the White Huns would have definitely spoiled any reputation for peace they had by storming into India. Second, we've learned that the White Huns have a stable enough state that you can form a deal with them. You can have a peace treaty with the White Huns. And they will respect that treaty, and they'll expect you to respect it too. Third, and most important for the Indian scenario, the White Huns are incredible soldiers. I mean, the Persian army was itself an immense force. 
It had beaten the Romans. It had beaten the Kidarites. It had beaten pretty much everyone else in the area. The Persian army was also huge. They were well-armed and they were very skilled. They knew what they were doing. But these white Huns thrashed the Persian army every single time they met them. In the story that we've just heard, they thrashed them a whopping five times. And that thrashing is even more remarkable when you realise that the White Huns' army can't have been that big. Just from the number of White Huns in existence, there must have been only about, say, 6,000 soldiers in the White Hun heartlands. But the White Hun army was extremely fast and extremely deadly. It was capable of trickery, of clever strategy, capable of rushing in from over the horizon, and so it was capable of outmanoeuvring, outfoxing, and thrashing a much greater force. In fact, it's said that every Persian shook with fear whenever they saw a white Hun, because the white Hun couldn't help but remind them of all the calamities that the white Huns had inflicted on Persia. And it said that even the great Persian soldiers, the soldiers who had beaten the Romans, these soldiers would walk into battle with their heads hung, as if they were walking to their deaths when they were walking to fight the Huns. And all too often, they were. So these Huns were the men who now had their eyes on northern India. Warriors with the invincible aura of Attila the Hun, but combined with a civilised and thoughtful cleverness. As the Huns were invading India, the Emperor of India's mind was somewhere else entirely. Now exactly where the Emperor's mind was, that's something that's going to have to wait for the next episode. But we can't pass over the Emperor of India entirely. And that's because I made a rash promise. Last week, I promised that I'd finish a story I started last week. And that's what we're going to do. Now, my rash promise means that the sources part of the episode and the history part of the episode will be slightly out of sync. But it's just this one time. And you can think of this as a sort of legendary preview of the history that's going to be in the next episode. When we left the story in the last episode, the Emperor of India, Kumaragupta, who in this, in this story is called Mahendraditya, the Emperor was desiring a son. The rest of the story goes like this. Shiva and poverty were on the mighty mountain Kailasa, the glens of which are visited by troops of gods, which is beautiful with the smile that the northern quarter smiles, joyish at vanquishing all the others. All the gods, with Indra at their head, came to visit them, being afflicted by the oppression of the Malechas, the barbarians. And these immortals bowed and then sat down and praised Shiva. And when he asked them the reason for their coming, they said, O God, these Asuras who were slain by you and Vishnu have now been born again on the earth in the form of lechers, and they slay Brahmins, they interfere with the sacrifices and the other ceremonies, and they carry off the daughters of the hermits. In fact, what crime do the villains not commit? Now you know, Lord, that the world of gods is ever nourished by the earth, 
for the oblation offered in the fire by the Brahmins nourishes the dwellers in heaven. But as the Malechas have overrun the earth, the auspicious words are nowhere pronounced over the burnt offering, and the world of gods is being exhausted by the cutting off of their share of the sacrifice and other supplies. So, devise an expedient in this matter. Cause some hero to be born, to become incarnate on the earth, mighty enough to destroy these Malechas. When Shiva had thus been entreated by the gods, he said to them, Depart, you need not be anxious about this matter, be at your ease. Rest assured that I will soon devise an expedient which will meet the difficulty. When Shiva had said this, he dismissed the gods to their abodes. And when they had gone, the Holy One, with poverty at his side, summoned a gunner named Malyavat and gave him this order. My son, descend into the condition of a man and be born in the city of Ujjain as the brave son of King Mahendraditya. That king's a portion of me and his wife is sprung from a portion of Ambika. Be born in their family, and do the heaven dwellers the service they require. Slay all those mlechers that obstruct the fulfilment of the law contained in the three Vedas. And by my favour, you shall be king over the seven divisions of the world. And the Rakshasas, the Yakshas, the Greeks, and the Vitalas, the vampires, shall own thy supremacy. And after thou hast enjoyed human pleasures, you will return to me again. When the gunner received this command from Shiva, he said, The command of you two divine beings cannot be disobeyed by me. But what enjoyments are there in the life of a man? Involve separations from relations, friends and servants. It's very hard to bear. And the pain arising from loss of wealth, old age, disease and other ills of humanity. Bit of a bummer. When Gunnar had said this to Shiva, the god said in response, Go blameless one. Those woes will not fall to your lot. By my favour, you will be happy throughout the whole period of your life on earth. When Shiva had said this to Malyavat, that that virtuous gunner immediately disappeared, and he went and he was conceived in Ujjain in the proper season, in the womb of King Mahendraditya. And then Shiva comes to Mahendraditya and tells him in a dream that he's going to have a son and he should name him Vikramaditya. When the god had said this, he disappeared, and the next morning the king woke up and joyfully related his dream to his ministers. And they also told the king, one after another, with great delight that Shiva had made a revelation to each of them in a dream that he was to have a son. And at that moment, a handmaid of the harem came out and showed the king a fruit, saying, Shiva gave this to the queen in a dream. Then the king rejoiced, saying again and again, truly Shiva has given me a son, and the ministers congratulated him. And his illustrious queen became pregnant like the eastern quarter in the morning when the orb of the sun is about to rise. And she was conspicuous for the black tint of the nipples of her breasts which appeared like a seal to secure the milk for the king with whom she was pregnant. In her dreams at that time, she crossed the seven seas, being worshipped by all the Yakshasas, the Vitalas and the Rakshasas. And when the due time was come, she brought forth a glorious son who lit up the chamber as the rising sun does the heavens. And when he was born, the sky indeed became glorious, laughing with the falling rain of flowers and ringing with the noise of God's drums. And on that occasion, the city was altogether distractive with festive joy and appeared as if intoxicated, as if possessed by a demon, as if generally windstruck. And at that time, the king reigned wealth there so unceasingly that, except the Buddhists, no one was without a god. And King Mahendraditya gave the name of Vikramaditya, which Shiva had mentioned, to his son.
Beautiful poetry there. Next episode, we're going to see who this son was. The son that was going to go on and defeat all the Meletchers. I hope you've been enjoying the podcasts. And if you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. It's the Sneha Situ Memorial Fund. There are details on the website and the link is in the description to this podcast. Have a great week. Take care.